1: Throughout history, the church has had a battle plan, a strategy that has always led to victory. What is this battle plan? Gary Wagner has the answer next on Abounding Grace. Again, greetings in Christ. Hi there, and welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church here in San Jose. Have you ever been in a battle, whether it was a a simple tickle fight with your children or a battle with your mind? As Christians, we're in a constant battle with the world. To get this victory that we'll be talking about today, the battle plan needs to be practiced and maintained. Join us, Galatians chapter 2, in your Bible, and study with us what we need to do to battle for the gospel.
2: We have been looking at the seven basic principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are explained in the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1. And Paul describes these basic principles because many of the Galatians were listening to those who were altering or modifying the true gospel and... They were deserting the church. In laying out the gospel, as he did, Paul was giving the Galatians and the church throughout the ages the principles they need to discern between the true gospel and the false teachers who were preaching and teaching a man-made gospel that fit in with their prideful thinking of natural man, that he must play a part in his own salvation. And as we saw last week in verses 6 through 10, Paul lashes out at these false teachers, and he harshly condemns them, particularly in verses 8 and 9. And let's read those two verses. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So God calls down his curse on anyone, even himself, sorry, Paul, and the heavenly host of angels, if they change the gospel in any way, adding to it or taking away from it. And we saw from a brief look at Joshua chapter 6 and the battle of Jericho that the Hebrew word for curse is harem, which means absolute destruction for any teacher or preacher of a false gospel. We ended last week's sermon by looking at three of the four reasons why Paul so harshly condemned these false teachers. I'll briefly mention the first three just to jog your memories, and then we're going to look at Paul's life in verses 11 through 24 and see how seriously he took the gospel as well as God's sovereign grace. The first reason for Paul's strong response toward those who modified the gospel so they could take some credit for their salvation is because it takes away from the glory of God. And God has said very clearly, he shares his glory with no man. Second, and very important, the eternal welfare of human beings is at stake. If any of the seven tenets of the gospel of Jesus Christ are modified, then we make it no gospel at all. And we limit the power of God unto salvation, and we condemn then the entire human race to hell. We saw the third reason for Paul's severe rebuke of the false teachers in Galatians 1.10. It says... For am I now seeking the favor of man or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. Paul, now as a Christian, recognizes that his salvation is by the will of God and his sovereign grace alone. So the goal of his life became the pleasing of God... And not the accolades of man. Paul had a tremendous sense of accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ. So his only concern was whether or not what he was preaching and how he lived pleased his Lord and Savior. Paul understood his duty to Christ was to guard the purity of the gospel. And then to hand it in its entirety unto. Tampered with, to future generations. And that brings us to verses 11 through 24. This is a fascinating text. It, it looks like a historical chronology. It, it looks like a travelogue of various places Paul visited. But it has a very important role to play in Paul's argument. Let me give you the points of these verses and then we'll take a closer look at them. The point, whole point, that Paul is making to the Galatians and to us is that the gospel is the one and only gospel from God. And because of its divine origin, the gospel is the standard by which all human opinions and actions are to be judged. It is the one standard of truth, therefore, it cannot be changed or modified in any way by individuals or churches or anyone. To blur or compromise the divine origin of the gospel and the Bible is to change the gospel itself into something man-made and therefore making it absolutely useless in getting any one of us to God. Therefore, in these verses, 11 through 24, Paul shows persuasively why you and I should believe that this gospel originated completely with God and is from God and not from Paul or any human being. What we read in the Bible is not the product of Paul's brain. He didn't just think it up. He didn't even get it from the other apostles. In no way is the gospel that you read about in the book of Galatians and the entire New Testament man's gospel. Paul is simply saying, I did not fabricate it, nor was it handed to me as a long-standing church tradition. What you read in my books, he is saying in effect, I was given by direct revelation from God in Christ. Both the message and the words that express the message came from Christ. They didn't come from me. They didn't originate in my mind. They didn't originate in the mind of any man. They came straight from God. And that's the claim that he's making here. And it's not just the doctrine. It's not just the ideas he expresses It's not just the message, but the very words that he uses to express that message originate with God. So the Bible is not only the word of God, the Bible is the words of God. That's the claim that Paul makes. Listen to pastor and author John Stott. The magnitude of Paul's claim is remarkable. He is affirming that his message is not his message, but God's message. That his gospel is not his gospel, but it is God's gospel. That his words are not his words, but God's words, unquote. Now there is a very important sense in which no one can say that sense. I can't say that to you. I can't look at you and say there's nothing about this sermon today that originates with man. Brothers and sisters, this entire sermon, except the scripture I quote, originates with man. I read commentaries. I listen to sermons on CD and on sermon audio. And you know what? Preachers are the greatest plagiarists that ever lived. Charles Spurgeon said, the only preacher who didn't plagiarize was Satan because he just makes it up as he goes on, end quote. So there's a lot of man in my sermons and it only does you any good so far as the word of God is in it and it is faithful to that word and God's words are heard in it and God's word is faithfully presented to you. No preacher, however faithful to the word of God, can say what Paul says about this, his preaching. He says, there is nothing from man in what I am writing and in what I preach. I got it all from God. Now in verses 12 through 24, he gives you some solid reasons why you should believe him. He is going to present to you the convincing evidence from his own personal history. That his gospel, what you read in the Bible, did not originate with man, but with God. And this is masterful. And he draws his arguments from his own life, before his conversion, at his conversion, and after his conversion. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here he's drawing things from his life before his conversion. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Now remember, as you look at all of this, You've got to keep in mind why Paul is bringing all this up. Paul is taking these three phases of his life to show us, actually to prove to us and the people of Galatia that he didn't get his gospel from man, that it is literally absurd to think he got his gospel from man. So he starts out by giving his testimony of what his life was like before he became a Christian. And this man was quite accomplished. He was a successful man in every sense of the word, intellectually and culturally superior to most men in his day. He had a vigorous mind, which is obvious from reading his epistles. And he had an advanced education because later in life, he could still quote Greek poets, literary masters he learned from while he was in school. He was an experienced and successful businessman. You know, it was the custom of Jewish families in those days to bring up their children knowing some kind of trade. And and Paul was no abstract thinker. He was no ivory tower philosopher. He was a practical man. And he knew how to make money. He knew how to run a business and make good tents. He knew how to get things done. He was also a zealous and conscientious man for his religion. Some would even say a fanatic. He had faith in the Old Testament. He believed it was the Word of God. He believed in the only true God, Jehovah. He strictly obeyed all the traditions of the rabbis. And he himself said in more than one place that there was not one of his contemporaries who was more zealous and strict in obeying the laws of God and the rabbis than he was. He was also intense and bigoted in his hatred of Christianity and the gospel. Notice in our text he says, He not only persecuted the church, he sought to destroy it. His zeal and his ignorance blended into a savage disposition. He was consumed with a fanatic and unmistaken sense of duty. He was self-righteous. And his heart was filled with hatred for Jesus Christ and for the gospel of Christ and for the church of Christ, whom he saw as the enemy of God and of anything that was good. Now, why did he say these things about himself? Listen. Listen. A person in this mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or even to have his mind changed for him by any man. No condition, reflex, or other psychological device could convert a man in this condition. He was successful. He was satisfied. He was an intellectual, he was educated, he was a fanatic. He was zealous in his religion. And he was convinced of his proof. He was intense and savage in his persecution of anything he thought was against God. And do you think that guy, a man who's like that, is going to even think about the gospel? He says, don't be absurd. There's nothing human that can change a mind like that, beloved, which he says, I had before I was converted. Only God could do such a thing. And God did do such a thing. So he says, if you think of my life before I became a Christian, I would never have considered such a gospel if it were presented to me by those I so hated. God had to change this man. Then he describes his conversion. Does this come anywhere near your conversion? He's not only describing his conversion here, but his call to be an apostle. Verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood or with men, human beings. I want you to notice the abrupt difference between verses 13 and 14 on one hand and 15 and 16 on the other. In 13 and 14, Paul says, I, 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 I. In verses 15 and 16, it is all God. God did this, and God did that. You see, right in the midst of his smug, self-righteous, intensely religious and fanatic life, God stopped him right in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And God changed him instantaneously when he met the risen Christ. And all of Paul's raging fanaticism was no match for the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. Paul was on his way to Damascus with a heart full of rage for Christians to arrest them that they might be destroyed. That was his will, beloved. That is what he wanted to do. He wanted to continue his hostile war against the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, on the road to Damascus, stepped in and he said, Paul, I know what you want, but here is what I want. And he launched him off of his horse, blinded him, and converted him right there on the spot. Paul didn't ask to be converted, he didn't want to be converted nor was he expecting to be converted, but he was no match for the sovereign will of Jesus Christ. And beloved, neither are you. You can resist, and you can grit your teeth, and you can say, I'm never going to believe this gospel of sovereign grace ever, because it doesn't give credit to man's will as it deserves. I will never believe it. But your will is no match the sovereignty of God's grace if you could match God's will if your will determined to resist him and it was as strong as his will you are lost because we are such sinners that we will resist forever but praise God that his will is irresistible notice now that at his conversion here Paul gives all glory to God And shows that at each stage of Paul's conversion, God took the initiative and it was God's sovereign, omnipotent grace that caused his conversion. Now I want you to notice in his little testimony in verses 15 and 16, what is not in it. He doesn't say, I decided to follow Jesus. I'm glad I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm glad I achieved something. I'm glad I exercised the freedom of my will. That's not in there. But notice what he says in verse 15. But when he, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood or with human beings it is all of god notice the four things he says number one why is he giving his testimony now he is saying i want you to see how god saved me and then you'll realize i didn't just think this stuff up i didn't take this authority upon myself I just couldn't have done it and wouldn't have done it in my unsaved condition. There is no way I could have done it, as you can see as I tell you how God saved me. First of all, he says in verse 15, that God set him apart before he was born. That God set Paul apart for salvation and apostleship while he was still in his mother's womb. Before Paul was born, God consecrated him to be a Christian and to be an apostle. And that means since God did it, before he was born, he had clearly nothing to do with it himself. God's grace is totally unmerited and sovereign. And Paul's not the only person that has given this kind of testimony. He says... I am what I am, not because of any decision I made. It is because of a decision God made about me before I was born. I'm concentrating, consecrating myself to God now because God consecrated me to himself before I was born. So turn with me to the first chapter of Jeremiah. I'm going to give you two other examples of people who um, said similar things to Paul. First... Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5. The Lord is addressing Jeremiah, and he says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, before you could take any, make any decisions yourself. As to whether you wanted to consecrate your life to me, I consecrated you to me. Now show me, beloved, where is the emphasis? Is the emphasis on Jeremiah and what he did? Or is the emphasis on what God did for Jeremiah by grace before he was born? Is Jeremiah saying, I decided to consecrate my life to Christ and that is why I am what I am? No, he says, I am what I am because God consecrated me before I was born.
1: And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, Post Mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported, which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, why not you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are two in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found, again, at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408 Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless.